Disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. Is there any hope for Amtrak and American passenger rail? Well, it could emerge from the despondency of endless highway congestion. Train ridership levels are high. Operating losses are declining. Maybe, just maybe, we are at a fork in the rails. Stay with us. Full Disclosure airs on NPR member station VPM News and on iTunes at link fulldradio.com. Join us on Facebook and Twitter at Full D Radio. Joining me from Manhattan, Bloomberg Business Week correspondent Devin Leonard. I used to sit next to good Devin. Uh, he has a feature. He has a feature in the magazine which I uh, really wanted to pounce on called How to Save Amtrak or Ruin It. The head of America's passenger rail system isn't particularly attached to trains. Maybe that's a good thing. How are you, sir? I'm good. How are you, Robin? Had, Thanks I, for having I, me. Oh, yeah. I love it. This is a blast. Um, could you begin with uh, some background for our listeners? The very inception of Amtrak. It's it's almost 50 years old, and my impression was always that um, the passenger rail uh, services, which were splintered all across the country, were effectively nationalized and broken out of the freight train business in the early 70s because they were all so insolvent. And so Richard Nixon, I think, in creating Amtrak in the early 70s, it was never intended to be more than a stopgap. Is that right? Well, yeah, pretty much. I mean, you know, back 50 years ago, there were no sort of passenger railroads and freight railroads. You know, the railroads, just there were big railroad companies and they ran everything. But with the rise of the, you know, national highway system and then the, you know, federally subsidized uh, aviation industry, you know, the passenger rail business started just to go south, and and literally, the, the, lot, many of these biggest biggest companies were you know in danger of going into bankruptcy. So they convinced uh, Congress and the Nixon administration to uh, you know back legislation to basically bail them out to take the passenger rail railroads you know you know off their hands, and as you said, nationalize it. I, and the thing is, is that a lot of people, the, the people in the Nixon administration, they thought. Give us five years, we'll just run all these old passenger trains into the ground, I guess, sir. And and then this business will, will just go away. We wouldn't have to worry about Amtrak. I mean, it's not going to last very long. And here we are nearly five decades later, and it is effectively, you know, do or die. We have to live with it. I want to quote from a, a, a chunky passage in your feature, <clears throat> if I may. <laughs> quote, if you wanted to create a railroad from scratch, you'd never design one like Amtrak. It had 32 million riders last year and revenue of $3.2 billion, but it had an adjusted operating loss of $171 million and has needed federal subsidies to stay afloat every year since Congress created it in 1971. The most functional piece of Amtrak is the 457-mile Northeast Corridor between Boston and Washington. The trains on this line may not be as fleet as the bullets of Europe and Japan, but they run frequently and can pretty much be on time. Amtrak can make sure that because it owns almost all the Northeast Corridor track and controls much of the dispatching on it, which helps explain why the corridor had 12 million riders last year and an operating profit of $524 million. Then there's the rest of Amtrak's 22,000-mile network. Do you want to catch Amtrak in Cleveland? There's no train leaving there before 1.54 a.m. or after 5.50 a.m. Bring something to read, because outside the Northeast Corridor, Amtrak's long-distance trains operated according to schedule only 43% of the time last year. That just blows my mind. How can this stand 50 years in, mediocre or not? You'd think that the government would have whipped it into shape. I know it's it's kind of it's government-owned. It's quasi-private. How is this continuing today? Well, Robin, that's the whole that's that's what a lot of the stories about and really where a lot of the problem lies is that 
yeah, it's a government-owned, you know, passenger rail system, except for for the most part, it operates on uh, private tracks. The, you know, the, the tracks are owned by the freight companies, and uh, by law, they're supposed to give Amtrak trains preference. In practice, they, they, they often don't, so there's this sort of dysfunction that's just built into to, to Amtrak, and, um, you know, the freight companies have fought uh, the, the Federal Railroad Administration and Amtrak's, you know, efforts to come up with some sort of on-time performance standards, you know, that would that would uh, make, well, basically, ultimately, for, force the freight railroads to uh, to make good on that preference promise and to, you know, let, you know, make the Amtrak trains run on time. But it's a long, it's a long, long saga. Devin, I'm, I'm thinking back to AP history 25 years ago, and it almost <laughs> smacks of the era of the robber barons. I mean, you have uh, the progeny of, 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 you know, Commodore, whatever, all of these Vanderbilt, guys, Vanderbilt yeah. in the in the 19th century. So I'm looking at your story, and it says Amtrak network track ownership. Amtrak owned or leased track is only 3% of total. Right. Then there's BNSF, CSX, Norfolk Southern, Union Pacific, other railroads. These have been massively profitable. Warren Buffett owns one of them. Uh, you know, CSX is a is a is a roll up of so many other right. companies on the East Coast. How is it that the government just isn't is it is it up to the Department of Transportation to enforce that you guys have to share or it's just kind of left to benign neglect? When Amtrak trains were given preference, that was about two years after the creation of you know of Amtrak and you know in seventy one. The only you know entity or whatever you know part of government that could actually enforce uh, uh, you know preference or you know or or go after the freight railroads was the Department of Justice. They've only they've only done that once. So over over the years, you know this this problem continues. And in uh, I, I think it was in uh, 2008 or, or around then uh, there was new legislation passed, and uh, you know Congress told. Uh, Amtrak and the FRA to you know come up with its on on time performance standards. Well, the American Association of Railroads, which is the you know chief sort of lobbying group for all the freight railroads, uh, Amtrak paradoxically, as I say in the story, is also a member. They sued in, in I think it was 2011, and and that case went up to the Supreme Court twice. Finally, the Supreme Court just I guess you know, I guess said an, a, a lower court ruling would stand in the FRA and Amtrak's favor. That was in June. So now. Amtrak and the FRA are working on coming up with those standards. We'll 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 see we'll see what happens. But you know, I guess to to sum it up, it was you know maybe sort of screwed up legislation and then the intransigence of the the freight industry that's that's delayed this for so long. So Richard Anderson, right, who was the CEO of Delta, he really has no reason to to have to come and do this. Delta, right. you know, Delta has been a profitable thing for right. him. He moved on. He had a package. Uh, this has been kind of a job that nobody has liked. <laughs> you know, right. It's almost like the MTA and everything. Totally. But he's here and doing it and trying to bring uh, discipline of safety and operational improvements and some modicum of accounting to to something. That's really hard to get uh, your, your your number head around. But I look at it. He did an interview also with Here and Now, uh, the the show on mm-hmm. NPR with Jeremy Hobson, um, and they posted Amtrak says its operating loss now is at twenty nine million dollars, which is an eighty two percent improvement over last year, and that's reduced four hundred million dollars over five years. So that is definitely a trajectory. But don't say that the company is is approaching a true break-even because right. it has a backlog of infrastructure investment approaching forty billion dollars. Meanwhile, Congress is giving it what two billion dollars right. a year. Right. So you can never really look at this as a kind of an apples to apples. If you were to break it out, um, it would be profitable on its own. It kind of lives on the patience and generosity of others. Like put it another way. 
this company could never have self-determination, whether it's the congressmen and women who want stops in, in, in their <laughs> districts right. um, to extend the budgeting of Amtrak or the host freight railroads. Um, it, it really needs the help of so many other people just to even approach non-gap break-even. Well, and I think what Anderson's trying to do or the way he would articulate it is that if we can go in there and sort of show that we can actually run Amtrak more like a business, run it more efficiently, show we're not being, uh, you know, wasting money, that we'll be in a better chance of getting, you know, those really big amounts that we need. I mean, the $41 billion, I've actually seen that number (laughs) closer to 42 now, you know, 41 billion, 42 billion, who's counting? But uh, maybe they'll get they'll get enough of that money to actually, you know, do something on that. that, That's all just for the Northeast Corridor. But uh, so they expect to be, you know, operationally break break even next year. And, uh, you know, they seem pretty close to it now. So but that's what he's trying to do. You know, Devin, uh, one of the formative experiences of my life is uh, October 24th to 31, 1986. The late 5th uh, grade uh, social studies teacher, Mr. Pakula, took us on a trip from Miami to New York over train. I don't even remember what it's called. Silver the Palm Silver or something. Meteor. Silver yeah, right. Media. Meteor, excuse it me. It could right. not have been profitable, but what was amazing, I had never seen fall colors. I remember at night, we finally passed D.C. and we saw the Capitol Rotunda. Uh, and in the morning, there were these blueberry pancakes, and we got to go upstairs in this glassed-in dome and look at look at the thing. That's not a profitable or efficient line, is it? Well, n- none of none of the long distance. There's 15 long distance routes, and and none of none of them are you know are profitable. So and then so Richard Anderson, you wrote in your story, it says the heresies have continued. He's there, um, you know, in April 2018, Amtrak said it was eliminating traditional dining car service on overnight trains on two routes east of the Mississippi. For decades, part of the ritual for sleeping car passengers was strolling to the dining car for surf and turf, prepared to order by a chef. Now they're getting something closer to airline treatment, ready to serve meals heated for them on the train. Uh, no more Agatha Christie, if you will. Uh, <laughs> I, there was always, I, I, I don't know if it's true that the Northeast Corridor line, for all of its flaws and peculiarities, is subsidizing all of these scenic routes, uh, you know, on the order of like three to one or four to one. Well, I, 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 I'm not sure it's, it's quite that simple, but I mean, the, the fact of the matter is those, those long distance lines lose so much money that whatever, you know, operating profit the, you know, the Northeast Corridor makes, that's pretty much eaten up by the losses, you know, that's other, other railroads. I mean, what, leaving aside the, the meals for a second, what Anderson, his bigger plan though for those routes and, and you know, and to try to turn them into the routes that make money, and I, and I think he would say more importantly serve people better, but is to sort of cut them up into shorter routes, run, you know, maybe that would, that would be also be more state supported and have more money and they'd be able to run trains more often. But his, his whole thing is uh, he wants to create these sort of corridors between cities over distances that are too problematic to drive because of traffic congestion, and then and then there's too much of a hassle to fly because it takes too long with post 9/11 security requirements and, and all that stuff. And and that's that's a really interesting idea. Of course, he's getting a lot of pushback from senators in rural states who are worried that. Yeah, let me let yeah. me point let me point out that example. You wrote for train lovers. The moment of truth was when Anderson, the CEO, initially refused to put up funds to improve a 400-mile stretch of the Southwest Chief between Dodge City, Kansas, and Albuquerque, New Mexico. Anderson said it would be more prudent to run a bus between the two cities instead. And then, quote, the idea that Amtrak would think about replacing passenger service with bus service for 400 miles and believe that we would still have a long-distance passenger train service is something I can't get over, 
Quote, Senator Jerry Moran, a Kansas Republican, scolded Anderson in a hearing in June. And doesn't that get to the problem is you need that uh, $2 billion or so stopgap yeah. every year. You're desperate for it. I mean, you're not even covering your own costs, much less scraping the surface of infrastructure investments. And you need the entire House and the entire Senate to put its stamp on that. Well, that's totally true, Robin. The only thing is, is that um, if you go deeper into the situation, you know, you know, with the, with the Southwest chief and maybe a little deeper than I was able to go into in the story, but that's a part of the railroad that's owned by, you know, the Buffett company that what it's, uh, I, I'm going to mess up the, the, the acronym if I say, say that BNSF, BNSF, but, uh, it's, it's a section that they're no longer using. They don't want to spend money on it a- anymore. It needed, among other things, positive train control, which is, which is, uh, you know, you know, a whole safety system. So basically, it was up to Amtrak to spend all the money, which is more than a hundred million dollars. And basically, so Anderson was sort of playing hardball, but it, you know, basically saying, look, you know, we don't, we don't have that much money. It'd be easier to, 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 you know, just to run a bus in between. But he's also trying to say, what's the purpose of these long distance uh, lines? A lot of them were created, you know, a hundred years ago. They're really set up for the people going from one end to the other, in that case, from Chicago to, um, you know, to the West Coast. So you can leave in the afternoon at a decent time, get in, you know, the next day or two days later, you know, at a decent time. But a lot of the routes in between are kind of ill-served. And, uh, and, and so, so maybe we should, should sort of chop these up. I mean, he, he, was, he was being provocative, but he was trying to sort of, I think he was trying to kind of start a conversation there. I don't, I don't know how well... It worked, you know, you know, with Congress. But you know, he's right. really—he's—he's he, he's trying to say there's all these things we we haven't discussed. We have to discuss them, and yeah, it's going to rub some people the wrong way. But you know, that's kind of we—we know we have to start to do that. Full disclosure: I'm Robin Farzad. Joining us from Manhattan is Bloomberg Business Week correspondent Devin Leonard on his uh, feature on Amtrak and a fork in the rail, if you will. Yeah. Uh, I go back to a 2011 story that I recall in Bloomberg. It was the then CEO of CSX, one of the biggest railroads in the country. The then-CEO says his railroad wants no part of high-speed or higher-speed rail passenger trains because he can't earn a profit from having them operate on CSX tracks. I'm a corporation, he says. I exist to make money, okay? You can't make money hauling passengers. So why would I want to do that? That wouldn't be fair to my shareholders. And it said it may not have been his intent, but the CEO's comments were reminiscent of 19th century robber baron and New York Central Railroad Chairman William Henry Vanderbilt's infamous uttering, the public be damned. History rhymes, I guess, doesn't it? Well, I mean, there's there's a funny sort of legal sort of gray area in this. I, I don't totally understand it, but basically, the the freights kind of have to let Amtrak, uh, you know, you know, on the rails. That's sort of part of the deal when, uh, we, you know, when the government, you know, you know, bailed them out. I mean, the question is is, uh, the, but then there's a big there's sort of a big negotiation, you know, typically between the freights and Amtrak about well, if you want any kind of on time performance. Uh, yeah, you know, you know, we we need the government to kick in money to sort of build new sidings on train tracks and 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 uh, you know improve the infrastructure and, and all that stuff. So, so so I mean to just say he he can say I I I don't want to do it, but uh, it, you know that's not just you know it, it, legally technically it, you know he kind of has to. It's it, it just but then it gets into a sort of a big negotiation about how to. How to you know what, what's it going to take to actually provide sort of decent service and 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 that's what the, the freights have a lot of leverage there. Run me through the uh, thought simulation because I know uh, uh, Justin Fox, your colleague in mm-hmm. uh, Bloomberg Opinion, yeah, he wrote had a great a, story. Yeah, he wrote a great story on maybe kind of no Amtrak isn't about to turn a profit. That um, 
you know, whether you use generally accepted accounting principles or earnings before interest taxes, depreciation, amortization, one-time state subsidies, and blah, 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 right. blah, blah, earnings before obfuscation. Right. <laughs> uh, I think it brought the interesting thought exercise to me is, um, you know, he posted a thing, a uh, chart that said where Amtrak makes money right. and where it doesn't, adjusted operating earnings loss by service line. If I take the Northeast Corridor, the jewel in the crown, in fiscal 2019, that's about a $570 million operating profit. In state-supported lines, negative, you know, $58 million loss. Long distance, $475 million loss. Infrastructure access, uh, they lost $111 million on that. Ancillary services, a profit of $45 million. Total adjusted operating loss, $29.8 million, about $30 million. So he writes, from the looks of it, the Northeast Corridor um, is doing great. And the state-supported services, such as the Pacific Surfliner in Southern California and the Hiawatha between Chicago and Milwaukee, are doing okay, thanks in part to that $234 million in state support. The overnight long-distance trains, on the other hand, appear to be kind of a disaster. Uh, but this then gets into the ledger domain of, I don't even know how you cost-allocate these things. You could not even, in a thought exercise, just strip away the Northeast Corridor, which is an enormous revenue center for Amtrak that's subsidizing the rest of the system, and say, here, we just break it out and privatize it. Right. It's not going to need subsidies. I mean, you're then assuming that the freight trains behave. You're assuming that the state subsidies kick in. You're assuming that it would not need the the overall two billion dollar subsidy. Walk me through that thought exercise when you have a, you know, so many administrations and people in the Hill have said we're just going to defund Amtrak and let's privatize it. Can you? Can you just privatize a- a- Amtrak? Let's I, say the I, Northeast I, Corridor. Uh, well, I I think it, I th- I think you, you, maybe you could. The problem is is that you'd have to do something about that the. Um, the you know the forty one billion dollars in uh, I mean th- these are enormous tasks to say nothing of you know you you used to ride New Jersey Rail between right. uh, you know what government Governor Christie did and after Superstorm Sandy I, just to to quote again I'm kind of breathless about this the nineteen ten swing span drawbridge over the Hackensack River near the Secaucus Station in New Jersey is said to be the busiest rail bridge in the Western Hemisphere but workers sometimes have to smack it with a sledgehammer after it's been opened to get the rails back in place. The price tag in Amtrak's fiscal 2020 funding request for replacing it with a taller bridge that wouldn't be need to be open for passing boats, $1.8 billion. Uh, the rail tunnels under Baltimore, south of Amtrak Station, were built in 1873. Yeah, and back have, to the Civil War. No, yeah, I totally. And have curves and a grade that necessitate slow-speed trains. Estimated cost of a straighter, flatter replacement, $5 billion. And then... One more, Devin. No, I know the one you're going to say. Go, go ahead. Yeah, guys. we can I, speak I, to I, it. I, we can talk about that too. Yeah, the two ahead. tunnels right. under the Hudson River that Amtrak and commuter trains used to travel between Jersey and New York City have been in use since 1910, were damaged by flooding from Hurricane Sandy in 2012, and may not be usable for much longer without major repairs. The latest estimate of the cost to fix them and dig a new tunnel to allow trains to keep rolling during the repairs and add capacity when they're done is 11.3 billion dollars. What say you, sir? Here's what I say. I wrote a story 2 years about, uh, you know, Penn Station and those tunnels and I you know, I you know, I talked to, you know, scientists who said that if if there's if there's another, you know, hurricane, you know, sandy sandy like event, those tunnels could wind up collapsing because uh you know, if they flood and and then and then you know the water the water goes out you, you know the the pressure from the water and then the then the you know the the dissipation the pressure could cause those tunnels to collapse so so I mean um, 
well, to get to your point about uh, you know about privatizing Amtrak, and this just isn't like some you know regular well either business or government governmental agency. I mean, <laughs> you know that's that's an enormous liability, wouldn't you say? The possibility that those tunnels could collapse under the Hudson. Yeah, so that's the that's the problem is you want to break it out, but in a perfect world, Amtrak would be able to just post uh, earnings, you know, uh, operating profit sands forty right. billion dollars or more of infrastructure investment. Which Anderson himself has said that you know we've spent decades and decades just starving infrastructure in this country. Meanwhile, I ninety five, I two eighty five, right. you go, you right. know, the I ten in, in California. The the 101, the 405, they're always under construction, and nobody ever says, "Oh, we you know we need to stop funding those, or we should you know you know that that is important, or or you know we shouldn't uh, you know fund uh, you know uh, airports and you know and things like that." And and it, it 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 is it is unfair, and and you know the whole idea that somehow rail sort of by definition is you know is a boondoggle, which you know you know some some people would say that's all. You know, you know that's all really worked against Amtrak over the years, and worked against sort of passenger rail in general. So I'm really interested in you know uh, Richard Anderson wanting to double down. This is by far not a perfect scenario being handed to someone, and you got to give him props at his age and yeah, his experience for sure. kind of wanting to roll up his sleeves and spar with congressmen and states and localities and and uh, you know both the combination of not in my backyard and if you're going to cross through, you better build it in my backyard. <laughs> so he wants to double down on these urban routes where the highways are impossibly congested. And if you just kind of do an actuarial or population analysis, there's no more room to build out. Population is right. going to increase. It's going to get worse. We clearly have it in the Beltway. You clearly have it in SoCal. You clearly have it in Atlanta. So he's talking about routes like doubling down on Milwaukee, Chicago, San Diego, mm-hmm. um, to LA, uh, the Northeast Corridor, clearly. And then I see surreal headlines like July 25th, 2019, Amtrak to launch nonstop a seller service between New York and DC. Um, hello, nonstops. <laughs> now you're launching nonstop service? This idea that he's going to differentiate on the lines that he already has mm-hmm. and maybe have uh, price points be different. Mm-hmm. Isn't that a little surreal to you that we're only in 2019 launching nonstop service between? New York and DC. Well, I mean, it's I guess b- <laughs> better late than never. I mean, look, the the fact of the matter is that for the most part, Amtrak hired you know all these people from um, uh, you know who'd worked in sort of public transportation, uh, you know, you know, uh, you know, authorities or whatever, and and their mentality, the, the, you know, was more political, you, you know, I think, and there were certain. You know, uh, uh, you know, lines that they just weren't going to cross. They weren't going to try to take on, uh, you know, people and people in you know in Congress and the Senate, you know, who were, who felt that these long distance routes were you know were sacrosanct, and um, they weren't going to take on the unions. They weren't going to you know take on sort of you know rail fans, you know, and and people like that. And this guy comes in and. He's just coming off this enormously successful, you know, stint as CEO of Delta, and, and uh, you know, basically sort of resurrecting the company after it came out of bankruptcy, merging it with, uh, with with Northwest, and he just looks at he just looks at everything, looks at the world completely differently, and certainly looks at the situation completely differently, and and uh, it's just really interesting. You know, I, I um, going back to the Justin Fox column, which he gave you props in in 
you know, your feature for Business Week. Yeah. Um, you know, if you have these these people, these partisans, uh, you know, either Amtrak lovers or the others who call it scam track, and we need to break <laughs> it up and show it tough love and privatize right. it. Um, maybe, maybe, just maybe, the answer is is somewhere definitely in the middle. He goes. Passenger trains bring with them positive externalities such as reduced road traffic and pollution and more livable pedestrian-oriented cities. Along the Northeast Corridor, they're crucial to the functioning of a regional economy that accounts for 25% of U.S. GDP. More faster and, in some cases, entirely new train services along other densely populated corridors in California, Texas, Florida, and the Great Lakes, the Southeast, and elsewhere could be an economic and environmental boon. That will take a lot of investment. Some may come from private sources, and private train operators may be a better choice than Amtrak for many of the routes. But the evidence from around the world, the bullet train services on the Japanese main island of Honshu seem to be the lone major exception, is that continued public infrastructure investment is required to make passenger rail work. So again, we step back from this. It's kind of a damned if they don't, damned if they do. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I don't know quite what to say. I mean, you, you just put it, you know, you just put it really well, well yourself. I mean, there, there are, there are just these huge, you know, economic benefits from from having, you know, an improved rail system. You're already seeing it, as you said, you know, in the Northeast Corridor, and given the direction of the country, you know, the you know the the increases in population, we're going to we're going to see the the increased issues with the highways and the fact that you can't really widen them anymore. I mean, that, that's what Anderson says sort of at the end, you know, my story. He, he says, yeah, there are obstacles, but sooner or later, these larger, uh, you know, trends, you know, demographic and population and otherwise, they're going to overwhelm the obstacles. We have no choice but to do this. The question is if that's going if, if to happen, he's going to still be uh, the CEO of Amtrak when that happens or if, uh, you know, he'll fail and maybe it'll be up to somebody else. Devin, you and I have always pondered, you know, private profit, socialized mm-hmm. risk and with the bailouts and everything else. This seems to be the peculiar case of, you know, you do want publicly backed losses for enormous, you know, Justin Fox calls them externalities. You can't measure the importance. Is, you know, it, it's dysfunctional if I try to leave Richmond at seven in the morning and try to get to D.C. At some points of leaving D.C., it used to be that you want to leave before three o'clock to make it back south in time and, and avoid the mixing bowl and everything. And now it's closer to two o'clock. Yeah. We can't count on the highways anymore. And that's an enormous hit on productivity. I think again about the 101 and the 405. If you want to get from one part of LA to the other part of LA or or Atlanta's infamous, what is it, the 285 route. When does Congress as a whole realize that one way or another somebody is absorbing these costs, either in lost productivity or um you know, the government throwing transportation dollars. I'm, I'm thinking about Justin Fox pointing to this stat. Amtrak's net loss, according to generally accepted accounting principles, was $875 mm-hmm. million, up from $817 million in right. fiscal year 2018. Amtrak also reported receiving $234 million in support from the governments of states through which some of its trains run. Without that money, losses would have been well over a billion dollars. So at some point, are we just throwing generally accepted accounting out the window and said we we need to have societal accounting for this? I, I well, sure. I mean, you know, I, you know, I, I, it's it's. I mean, that's really you know, that's the argument right now. That I mean, you know, that that Anderson can do everything everything he can to try to make you know Amtrak run more efficiently, but ultimately, they need money a lot a lot more money, even if they're operationally profitable. 
but you know, the other question is, I mean, I'm I'm also working on a story about Virgin Trains. I mean, the first uh, yeah in Florida, in South yeah, Florida. The, the first privately operated uh, passenger train service. Some would say the, you know, in in more than a century, and in the, you know, then there's a, is is that. Has has everything gotten so bad that maybe, <laughs> you know, private companies will get back into the the passenger rail business? I mean, I think that's a really interesting question. That's an interesting, you know, sideline to it. Is I everybody there thought that it was destined to fail, but it's actually quite popular in South Florida, where I'm from. Is the old Brightline right. service and right. Vir- Virgin came in and acquired it? No, they, they just they took a, a small equity position, and you know, I think I, I think it's really really a, a brand, you know, kind of a branding thing. It's almost like. So, you know our you know, our president uh, you know putting his name name on an, an office building or you know, or, or something like that. But uh, but but I, I think uh, you know the former Brightline folks feel they benefit from you know ha- having having that kind of name recognition. But I don't think virtually all of that involved. So we also have the neighbors that share tracks with Amtrak, and you are all too familiar with New Jersey Transit. It has its many summers of hell out of out of Penn Station. I think every summer is a summer of hell in New Jersey right. Transit these days. Metro North, with I, which I took to get from Westchester to New York, uh, you know, Grand Central Station is marginally more pleasant and reliable, but. Uh, all of these guys have unsatisfactory service. The Long Island Railroad has been a disaster also, many parts of it. They find cost overruns, mm-hmm. ticket prices hiked, uh, on-time schedule deteriorating year after year. Uh, to what extent are we kind of looking at this in the wrong way, Amtrak versus the regional train companies and the commuter trains? They all have to use the same infrastructure. They all have to deal with the same tunnels. They're all on the same track. Well, and 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 in in you know in the case of the Hudson tunnels, you know, on the Northeast Corridor, I, I think New Jersey and New York are ready to put in a, a lot of money. They're sort of waiting for the you know the federal government to to do something. There was a deal, uh, you know, on the, the Obama administration for the federal government to put in a lot of money to fix up those tunnels, and then the Trump administration kind of backed out of it. So, um, no, none of these things are going to happen without without some major state involvement. And I think that's the hope, you know, Anderson's hope is that um, well, what, once you go go below 750 miles uh, it, it's on, on an Amtrak line, the states, you know, have to kick in money. So, so that's sort of, I think, you know, that's part of the strategy is that for these shorter routes that, you know, it, it'll be, they can get more money from, from the states. And, and, and that, that makes it all seem maybe, maybe more doable. In closing, Devin Leonard, um, in my lifetime, and I'm still a young man in my right. 40s, um, am I ever going to see a kind of a Pudong China style high speed rail on the eastern seaboard? Is there ever going to be the unanimity and the eminent domain and everything necessary to build a true bullet train to get me, say, from D.C. to New York in, in chump change time? Well, if it happens, Robin, uh, you know, you're going to be you're, you're going to be more likely to see it than I will because I'm about 20 years older than you. So Devin, I hope you I hope you do. <laughs> Devin Leonard, I can't thank you enough for joining no, us. No, great to be here, Robin. You have to read his feature in Business Week on uh, Amtrak. Uh, give me the title. Well, I guess, well, online it says you know, you know, Amtrak CEO has you know has a plan to fix Amtrak. You won't like it. And and then the the one in uh, in print is uh, how to save Amtrak or ruin it. Or head, ruin it. Yeah. The head so. of America's passenger rail system isn't particularly attached to trains. Maybe that's a good thing, uh, sir. Thank you so much, and I sure. look forward to your upcoming pieces on the industry. All right. My guest in studio is Danny Plogger, Executive Director of Virginians for High Speed Rail, an association of citizens and communities in the Commonwealth advocating for better passenger rail. How are you, sir? 
Good. How about yourself, Robin? I'm great. Thank you. I want to quote from a, a recent column you had uh, in the local newspaper. Even though passenger rail received less than 4% of the $23 billion that Virginia has spent on our transportation system over the past decade, it's the fastest growing mode of transport during that time frame. Our 54% growth in ridership far outpaces the passenger growth at our airports, up 11%, or the increase in vehicle miles traveled on our roadways, up 4%, which proves that Virginians want an alternative to congested highways and ever-shrinking legroom. As evidenced by the the infamous Staples Mill Station, which I thought, you know, here in Richmond, which I thought was merely the busiest in, in Virginia, but you say— It's the busiest in the entire southeast. Get out. Yeah, almost 400,000 people take that station every single year. 18 trains serve it. It goes all the way up as far north as Boston and service all the way down to past Atlanta and to Florida. So a lot of folks utilize that station. No offense intended to anyone, but it's not a beautiful station. It is not. I mean, it is a trailer on a parking lot. Iron Curtain, (laughs) East Germany feel to it. It it definitely has retro 1970s like infrastructure written all over it. And so here's here's my question is why is it as a counterpoint to that two things down track is – the former train station is now the Museum of Science. I always go there and I wonder why they had to annex that, why you can't feel the grandeur of coming in onto Broad Street in a, in a you know, Pennsylvania station type uh, infrastructure that was moved decades ago into Main Street Station. It seems like a great yeah. place to throw weddings and bar mitzvahs, but not if you want to catch a, a train. When everything became privatized, when the private railroads gave up uh, the service and moved it over to what is now Amtrak, you know, they no longer subsidize these large, glorious stations anymore, uh, which is how the Science Museum ended up being where it is and, and why uh, Main Street Station ended up being a mall and an office park and everything else until it became a rail station again um, in the mid-2000s um, and how we ended up with these suburban stations that look like trailers on parking lots. How much of this problem, I've heard things about Main Street Station because it's gorgeous. I wish everybody could come into Richmond in this kind of... Is it, is it 100 years old? It survived floods, yes. fires, everything. You know, we take it on Father's Day. We take the kids and the nephews and everything. They put on the conductor's hats. And we, like I said, we use the mediocrity to our advantage because it takes forever to get between there and Ashland. And we take over the, the dining car and go all aboard. But you'd wish that people could come into Richmond, Virginia and the splendor of Main Street Station. Are there track gauge issues and CSX issues? There, there's not necessarily track gauge. There is um, really it's just a matter of building more capacity between Main Street Station and Staples Mill. Uh, Main Street Station is a complicated station. It's elevated. All the tracks are elevated into and out of it for the most part. And so when you're trying to expand capacity over viaducts, uh, that is much more expensive and much more complicated uh, than it is if the tracks were just laying on the ground. Uh, Because you have to figure out how do you get individuals and passengers with disabilities off if they're on the far away track furthest from the station and get them over to the platform. And so there's a lot of complicated issues that have to be dealt with. But I think, you know, the plans, the D.C. to Richmond high-speed rail plan is done. The study is completed. That is planning to add a lot more service through Main Street Station. And so it's on the horizon. $95 $95 million transformation that the, the you know, Main Street Station sites boast. And uh, yes, it is gorgeous again, but I wonder opportunity costs. Like what if you'd thrown $95 million into Staples Mill Station? There are plans. There's a, there's a study underway or, or being requested by the state to massively upgrade Staples Mill. I think, you know, for our region, if you look at any region over a million, they usually have multiple stations. Alexandria, which is one of the top 50 stations in the nation uh, by passenger volume, is closer to 
Union Station than Main Street is to Staples Mill. You're talking to D.C. Up in Northern Virginia, yep, and D.C. And so, you know, having these multiple stations serve regions is not uncommon. Walk me through some of the peculiarities of this. I've been, you know, uh, I study what China did coming after out of the, you know, the 2008 uh, global financial crisis. There's this infamous stat that I think Bill Gates shared that they had um, used more cement, I think, in the four or five years out of the great financial crisis than the United States did in the entire 20th <laughs> century. And a big part of that was high-speed rail. Yep. And the Pudong bullet train, and they, they're very boastful when you go into Shanghai that these trains take, you know, a, a little sliver of the time that their American counterparts do. Is it impossible, this dream of, of having true high-speed rail in the United States on the eastern seaboard? Maglev or, or you know, Japanese-style, European-style? I, I don't think so. Um, you know, my grandfather did transportation for the Department of Defense. Uh, and, and he told me once his job was to figure out how to move troops, tanks, and toilet paper from any point in the country, uh, from point A to point B. Uh, and when I asked him, you know, why Europe um, had high-speed rail and America didn't, uh, his response was they had a small conflict in the 1940s yeah. uh, that allowed them uh, to rebuild their infrastructure. And so as Americans, we we invested in highways and we spent – I think over in excess of $7 trillion um, since the 1950s on building roadways in America, other countries decided to go with railways. Um, and so they took rail lines like the DC to Richmond and they took it from 40 miles to 50 and from 50 miles per hour up to 100 and from 100 to 200. Uh, and so there's a model out there of, of how to do it, of how to continually uh, upgrade our rail lines. It just takes continued investment. Part of the problem is on Capitol Hill and D.C. on in the federal government, they fund Amtrak one year at a time. And so if you were trying to run a business uh, and you didn't know what your capital investments would be two, three, four, five years out, it's very hard to make those large investments in infrastructure when you when you basically have it go with a cup in hand every year and ask for, you know, a couple dollars. What what are the peculiarities of this kind of Richmond to DC line? You wonder if if we could pull it off, if it could truly be efficient, or even a Richmond and New York thing, the uh, potential for this place to keep, be kind of a bedroom community. I don't know if it's a good thing to kind of turn into a Fredericksburg or something. The real estate values, the livability, the people wanting to move here to be within true access to Northern Virginia, you know, to, to make a morning commute of it. Absolutely. What would have to be done to to pull that off? You you use this metaphor when you're you know, touring and lecturing a Corvette stuck in traffic can't really be a Corvette. It's all about adding infrastructure. Uh, The same trains that you get on here in Richmond and you go north of D.C., you travel in excess of 150 miles an hour. Not the whole time, but you do get up to those speeds. But for 10 seconds, where? For for a couple minutes north of of Baltimore. Um, But it's like a Corvette and I-95 traffic. You have the ability to go real fast. You don't have the opportunity. And so when we talk high-speed rail or high-speed rail in Virginia, we're talking about it, building the infrastructure to allow our trains to reach their potential. And especially given the context of, you know, the state released a report that said to build 50 miles of new I-95 between Fredericksburg and D.C. would cost $12.5 billion. Um, and it would not change traffic at all. They would have to spend nearly $40 billion to make a dent in I-95 traffic. And I-95 would be 17 lanes across from one side to the other. And so when you're talking spending $40 billion to fix traffic for 10 years, 
I think we're running into the point of time when we need these alternative modes of transportation. Like we have tried roads. They did well for 50 years, but now we're reaching our breaking point. Do you have a number in your head what $40 billion would do in terms of track investment on this corridor? What would that buy you? So if Virginia state subsidy for Amtrak is about $16 million. That's it? That's it. Okay. And so if you were to spend $12.5 billion on building two new lanes, one north, one south, it would equate to about 750 years worth of Amtrak subsidies on behalf of the Commonwealth of Virginia, not even fixed traffic. Uh, and so in regards to, you know, our operational cost here in the Commonwealth, it's very little. Like, we have a lot of infrastructure we could build and really make a big difference. What about the VRE? Can you explain that to me? Or why don't we have commuter rail access between Central Virginia and the D.C. area that I, other places it, do? Because it would be too slow. Uh, you know, VRE is a commuter rail service. So it is meant to kind of serve a, a metropolitan region. Uh, very similar to the New Is that York. decidedly northern Virginia, not? It is, because it takes it, it takes longer to go on VRE from Fredericksburg into D.C. than it does taking Amtrak from Richmond to D.C. Get out. It does, because you have to do all these stops. It's a commuter rail, so it serves every other stop, whereas Amtrak can skip stops and hit just the major regions on the way up and in. I tell you, I absolutely, especially if you think about the, the cost, like the, the airport here has had bad consolidation issues and you have fewer choice going into LaGuardia, it's pretty prohibitive yeah. if you have to, on two or three days notice, fly to LaGuardia. And LaGuardia is not a pleasant airport. I don't know. <laughs> You're young, but <laughs> I've been there once I've been or dealing twice. for years. And, you know, Newark is not exactly convenient and used to be JFK option. But if you want to go to New York, the thing that frustrates me the most candidly is that one hour stop in D.C. Why does that still happen well into the 21st century? Why do we need to do that? It's because of the lack of federal investment in Amtrak. No, but what what are the mechanics? It, it's that it's so they have to switch engines. They go from diesel outside of the northeast corridor to electric engines on our Amtrak trains north of DC, uh, and so it takes forty five minutes for them to switch one engine, take off the electric or diesel, and and put on the. Why other. does Amtrak have to switch engines? Why can't they just make one train? be continuous and a true Northeast corridor line. We did have Richard Anderson on here and now telling yeah. Jeremy Hobson that after all, he considers Richmond to be the Southern terminus of the Northeast corridor. Absolutely. Because, well, first it's because the other corridors are not like electrified. Uh, and because we haven't invested in dual mode engines, which is something that Richard Anderson actually is a strong advocate of. And so instead of having two different engines that you have to switch off and spend 45 minutes or an hour you would just you would have one engine where you turn off the diesel engine. It's like a hybrid car. My 2012 Camry yeah. is advanced. <laughs> and so advanced. you Didn't turn off the diesel, you subsidies. turn on the electric, and, and then you go north without having to switch engines. And now you cut the cut the time in Union Station down to 15 minutes or less. So that entails actually parking there in the station with like you could go out, stretch your legs, yep. have a smoke, go and have while a... they take the engine off and put a new one on. Really? Yeah. And that throttles you by an hour and 10 minutes. Yeah, it, it cuts it down uh, or it adds about an hour to the trip, yep. So when I step back from this, I've heard forever, you know, you remember with the, the you know, Obama first 100 days, shovel ready and this, that, and um, Terry McAuliffe and high-speed rail. It's something that sells. It sounds great and whimsical and we got to do that. And, and clearly the absurdity of, you know, you see hitting a part of the track with a sledgehammer <laughs> and the Hudson tunnels and, and whatnot, we have – 1910 caliber technology still surviving well into the 21st century. But in the end, uh, it doesn't get anywhere near the funding it needs for infrastructure. It it's not. a tough sell. And I wonder when we hit 
a tipping point, what I call as a fork in the rail, when people realize that you can't put 17 lanes on I-95. You can't make this situation any better by throwing more money at it. When do we get there? I, I think we are getting there. Um, you know, Virginia's ridership on our trains is continuing to grow. We hit our highest ridership on Virginia's regionals last year with 924,000 people taking them. You know, the 2009, 2019 memes are very popular right now. And if you looked back at 2009, ridership on those same trains was less than 400,000. Uh, and so ridership has almost doubled, uh, more than doubled on our regionals. Um, you know, Virginians want more rail service. Um, younger Virginians want more rail service. You know, 22% of Virginia's millennials don't have a driver's license. So how are we attracting new businesses? How are we attracting companies and retaining employees when you have an entire generation that doesn't want to drive? Um, and the cost of building highways just continues to skyrocket. Um, so it's just, I think we're getting very close to that breaking point. You know, Danny, I remember I, w I was in graduate school in Boston, and that was also a frustrating thing. You had two stations to choose from. Uh, but the problems were there clearly with, you know, getting to New York, uh, going down through Connecticut. The bottlenecks were enormous. Uh, but even the train service wasn't very satisfying to the point that it you could take from Back Bay uh, luxury buses. I remember they're called limo liners that were able to avail themselves of the HOV lanes. They had Wi-Fi. They had um, uh, amenities that you would not even get on the top flight Acela <laughs> line, which is, you know, great but flawed. Is bus... A decent alternative here? Not if you sit in traffic. It's not. If if you have a bus that's going through heavily congested areas, um, then it's no different than driving. It does have a lot of environmental benefits. Uh, it does provide a lot more service to some communities. But I think it's we need to really kind of diversify our portfolio um, and get out from just an entire road diet and start investing in all the different modes. You know, one of the things that the misconceptions is, is that, you know, rail is the only money loser in transportation. I don't think there's a mode of transportation that makes a profit. Um, you know, airlines require FAA and all these towers. And I think that cost is about half a billion dollars a year, if not more. Um, roads require, I think, $20 billion in general fund transfers every year because the gas tax just isn't keeping up with requirements. Uh, and so every mode uh, loses money, but it's the economic benefits that come after that fact. Uh, you know, the, the person who is not sitting in traffic and is working on the train, making billable hours and growing the economy, those type of things are where we, we see the economic gains of rail. What's the state of play now? I remember Ashland was, was up in arms about, you know, higher speed rail and the, the, the track going through. Ashland is, is kind of a proudly railroad town north of Richmond. Right, it is. Uh, we that's where we that's where we take the Father's Day train from Main Street <laughs> Station. But there's this idea now of not in my backyard. Uh, there is, and and you know we see that. Wait, one other thing. In fact, because of the mediocrity of the Staples Mill Station, a lot of people say that one of the great life hacks is to go to Ashland, to go to Randolph Macon College, and take the train from there. You would think that they would want it. You would think that that would bring economic activity and not. But if anything, it's brought congestion. It doesn't. And Ashland is going to be, you know, a long-term issue, I think, for the Commonwealth of Virginia. Um, as we continue to expand tracks, there's going to be four tracks almost to Fredericksburg uh, and three tracks down to Ashland. It's going to move back into two tracks before going back out to three tracks. And so um, it is going to be a major congestion point in the next in the decades to come. And so that's going to be an issue uh, for that community to, to decide how they want to mitigate um, that situation. 
What about with uh, regime volatility in the governor's mansion in Virginia? You have a four, you know, a single term limit thing, and it, it could shift between someone who really wants to lavish money on on high speed rail and a person who wants to starve it. Yeah, that kind of volatility. I mean, now you have the Democrats getting the state house back, the they, delegates back. Are they are the Senate back? Are they looking to? I think there's going to be a, a huge transportation push, and in, in the next couple of general assemblies, but. Thankfully, rail has always been a, a strongly bipartisan issue. You know, Virginia is unique in that we have a dedicated funding source for inner city passenger rail, and that is primarily thanks to Governor Bob McDonnell and Senator John Watkins. Um, we have seen rail expansions under Tim Kaine uh, when he was governor, um, as well as Terry McAuliffe and Ralph Northam. And so uh, no matter what side of the aisle a politician in Virginia uh, sits, um, usually they are supportive of rail, uh, and we are very thankful for that. We know that uh, CSX, which is now based in Jacksonville, Richmond is a CSX town. I mean, the old Chessie system and seaboard, the, the, the idea here has been that uh, it has asserted itself much more than passenger rail. It's much more politically connected. Freight rail is a very profitable service. You see it like Warren Buffett bought a railroad because it's a way to play the booming, you know, emerging markets that want commodities, that want grains, and and it's very much short shrifted passenger rail, relatively. How much of that have you noticed in Virginia? The relative clout of an organization like yours, which is grassroots, versus very moneyed players saying that you know what, this is a waste of time. Um, you know, we as an organization co-signed the the Supreme Court briefs in support of giving Amtrak and the Federal Railroad Administration the ability to set standards for on-time performance. Um, so, you know, the, the host railroads certainly have um, that ability to delay our trains um, or put them on the sidings, and, and that causes uh, decline in riderships if trains are never on time. That's, uh, a, that's a real, you know, we, 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 you heard issue. the Devin Leonard yeah. interview. That's like a, it seems to be illegal because in the statutes, I mean, in the formation of Amtrak and passenger rail, and the split off from Freight World, they were told to behave in the early 70s. And Absolutely. 50 years into it, it's kind of enforcement is optional. Well, and part of it is there has never been any standards or any penalties. Um, and so if you're being told uh, don't eat the cookie in the cookie jars, but no matter how many cookies you steal, uh, there is no penalties or fines um, or pushback, uh, then it doesn't matter. Um, you know, and part of the reasons why the railroads gave up their authority and why that that mandate is in place is because most people don't know that the original alignments of of CSXs and Norfolk Southern's multi predecessor railroads, uh, those alignments were given to them by the government. Um, governments built most of the rail lines in the country, um, and then you know they turned them over as private to private companies to operate them in the 17 and 1800s, and those private companies merged and merged and merged, and then they became CSX and Norfolk Southern, BNSF, et cetera. Uh, but those original alignments go back to, you know, Virginia buying the, or, you know, buying the land from the, the landowners and, and allowing those rail lines to be built. I'm not an attorney, nor do I play one on radio, but isn't there, a, <laughs> isn't there an eminent, eminent domain issue here? Like, can't they come in and say, look, we're doing this for the broader good? Again, you're, these are private profits versus a broader public gain. You talk about, again, the quote-unquote benefit, the externalities. I get yeah. to bill more hours. I get to be on the laptop. Uh, I get to spend less time on uh, 95 and stuck in the mixing bowl. Uh, they can. I think, you know, the government is always hesitant to use eminent domain nowadays. 
um, for property rights and and uh, they would rather just you know purchase the right of ways when the opportunities arise. Um, but there's a lot of rail corridors that used to be three, four tracks that had been torn up. So the right of way is there. It's just a matter of putting the infrastructure back. For most of DC to Richmond, you know, outside of Ashland, the alignment is there to add three or four tracks. Uh, and so it's just, you know, the going back in and building where they're used to What do you to mean be. by the alignment? The topography? Uh, well, the, the, the right-of-way. So the right-of-way can hold three or four tracks. It's just they had been torn up over the years. And so now we have to go back and put them back You're in place. You're telling me that between most of D.C. and Richmond, we can add, as is right now, three or four more tracks. Yes. But, I mean, we still have to re-engineer. We have to fix a lot, you know, a part of that over that right-of-way. They added roads or they added highways. And so we have to fix some of those issues, straighten a little bit of curves to allow the trains to go faster. Um, but yes, for the most part, the the right of way can sustain three or four tracks. Full disclosure: I'm Robin Farzad. We're talking to Danny Plogger, Executive Director of Virginians for High Speed Rail, an association of citizens and communities advocating for better passenger train service. Um, give me the most exciting stretches, the things that are going to rebuild. You you talk in a lot of your analysis about routes that were abandoned or or left to kind of wither on the vine. If you think you know Hampton Roads, Roanoke, other places. Yeah. What about East West? Like one one question I pose is. <laughs> Isn't Richmond a sister city with Charlottesville? And shouldn't there be like a quick ex- express train availability that lets you avoid having to do the 64? We believe so. Uh, earlier, earlier this year, we launched a uh, – released a report about the Commonwealth Corridor, uh, which we say is connecting the beach and the Blue Ridge uh, between Roanoke up through Lynchburg and Charlottesville um, over to Richmond and down uh, through Petersburg and Williamsburg and the Hampton Roads. Uh, and basically connecting the state on an east-west basis. All our trains go north-south today. Um, and so we're at the beginning of the beginning. Uh, we have uh, requested a study be introduced in the General Assembly, and so uh, we'll be uh, doing a feasibility study, or the state will be doing a feasibility study to figure out you know, what it's going to take to get new east-west train service uh, up and running. But that's very exciting. It's been one of the most requested things from our members. Um, you know, the state is planning to add a lot more service. I think 81% more trains uh, between Richmond and Hampton Roads uh, or DC down to Hampton Roads, as well as additional train service out to Roanoke and the New River Valley. Uh, and so there's a lot on the horizon for new train service and better train service. Someone always whispered to me that there should be something connecting William and Mary to U of R to UVA. Is that even possible? Uh, well, I mean, the, the Commonwealth Corridor will do that. Uh, it will connect. You know, you ha- you have all these universities. So if you want to go from William and Mary and go see your friends in Blacksburg, you just jump on the train when that quarter is up. But it's and not running. a crazy thing of having to go to D.C. and then transfer yeah, to D.C. I mean, to go there, is it? You know, today, if you want to go from Roanoke to Norfolk, it takes 16 hours with a six-hour oh transfer in D.C. because you have to go up, transfer, and come back down. And so, you know, our goal is to eventually have better than car competitive service east-west. What is eventually? Eventually is, you know, whatever the feasibility study, when it comes back and says these projects need to be done, we have to put them through the six-year plan. We have to approach federal money. Um, and so hopefully sooner rather than later. Do you see how people yawn through that, though? I mean, no offense, but you I, saw absolutely. what Chris Christie did to the Hudson Tunnels, right? When something is adopted by administrations, people who are not long for the state house <laughs> or Congress or anything want results now. They want to bring home the bacon now. Absolutely. And, and you know, that's the problem with where we're running into in infrastructure is, you know, sometimes these things take uh, much longer than they should. Um, you know, the, the new Lynchburg train, I think, took two years from the time the study was released until the time the train launched. 
Um, the DC RVA study took has taken 20 years because of the constant changes in administrations, both state and federal. Um, and so I'm always hesitant to put a time frame, but we're at the beginning of the beginning. We're moving the needle and we're trying to get this ball rolling. Uh, finally, in the few minutes we have left, are there any interesting hacks you can share with us? You know, in the interest <laughs> of service journalism, I envy, by the way, I really envy my friends at Capital One uh, because they have this, I even want to get like a pass as a janitor or something in Capital One because you can go from their uh, West Creek campus to Northern Virginia on this deluxe bus that gets to avail <laughs> itself of the highest speed HOV lanes. It's apparently the best way to get between. And that that's what a company like yeah. this needs to be convinced to spend a lot on this region. Its headquarters are in Northern Virginia and in, in uh, McLean, and it has m- most of its employees, I believe, here. Are there other hacks within the rail system? Is there a train that you rely on? Do you go out of Ashland? Yeah. Do you drive to Fredericksburg, take the other leg? Do you take anything out of Main Street Station? I, I, I do. I always try to take uh, the regional trains because if you want a train that runs on time, um, you want a train that starts from your backyard. So I always try to take the trains that start from either Hampton Roads or Richmond because I know for the most part they're going to be running on time. And so I know I can get to my meetings when I'm supposed to. Um, and then I try to buy a train ticket or two back, uh, and then I'll return whatever one. It used to be much easier uh, to return a train, you know, if you bought two train tickets if, when you didn't know what your meetings were going to be, um, and then return one, but it's a little bit more difficult nowadays. Virginia has discounts to get 15% off train tickets. Uh, that's a program they launched. I encourage folks to take advantage of it uh, if you're riding a Virginia regional train and enjoy the ride. I mean, there's a lot of uh, good stuff coming down the the tracks. Enjoy what? I'm sorry. Enjoy taking the train. Enjoy the it, Wi-Fi that works one out of five times. You know, the, they're, we're working on improving the Wi-Fi, but hey, at least you have Wi-Fi. You know, if you were sitting in I-95 traffic, <laughs> you couldn't be on your computer working. I just wish there were a drone that could lift <laughs> me above the parking lot morass <laughs> at, at Staples Mill and I can avoid the, you know, East Germany in 1972 <laughs> experience and put me right on the train and... <laughs> You know, it's hard to pull off. Are we going to see uh, – Are there there are rumors that uh, Staples Mill Station is either going to be replaced or scrapped for something grander? I, I think it's going to be improved. Um, there are – you know, the, the state has requested a grant to do a full overhaul of a multi-million dollar study to upgrade it and give it modern amenities. Uh, and, and the state is really kind of pushing improving all our rail stations across the Commonwealth. So you're trying to say by 2056 we might have improved. Ho- ho- hopefully well sooner rather than later. Well sooner than 2050. Danny Plogger, you are the man. I appreciate Absolutely. it. Danny Plogger, you, Executive Director of Virginians for High Speed Rail, an association of citizens and communities advocating for better passenger rail. What's the Twitter handle? VHSR. And how can people get involved on Facebook? Go to VHSR.com. Or just search us, Virginians for High Speed Rail, on all social media. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Robin. Full disclosure, our engineer is John Valentine. Listen to this show on NPR member station, VPM News, and on iTunes at link fulldradio.com. I also have to plug the NPR One app because I can't live without it. We are always on track, kaboosting our signal. Come on, ride the train. It's a choo-choo. I'm Robin Farzad. Back with you next week. <laughs>